You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. Good morning and welcome to our Sunday gathering. My name is Josh, one of the elders here at Redeemer. And if you're a guest with us, we want to welcome you. Uh, We're so glad that you're here. We don't try to be an impressive church or put on a show for you or pretend for one minute that we have it all together. But we do believe that when we gather around God's word, as we confess it, as we read it, as we sing it and preach it, and in a few minutes go to the table and taste it, that God meets with us, that his Holy Spirit pours out grace upon grace and feeds us his church. And so welcome. We're glad that you're here. We are currently finishing up the gospel of Mark. We're walking all the way to Easter, finishing up Mark. And last week, Pastor Jordan walked us through Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, where Jesus comes in to Jerusalem to claim his crown, but it's not in the way you might, we might expect or that the Israelites were expecting. It was on a colt, on a donkey. He comes riding in and he makes this statement that he is coming to take the crown, but not through worldly means, not through the typical way that we might expect, but on a humble donkey. And it foreshadows that Jesus ultimately would defeat Israel's greatest enemy, sin and evil, through his own dying, through the humility and suffering of his own life. And today we're going to pick up in chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. And we're going to see in our text, Jesus is going to curse a fig tree. He's going to turn over tables in the temple. And finally, we're going to see an important lesson about the kingdom that he is bringing. And we'll see that Jesus' actions reveal that the system of religion represented by the temple was in its final days and that something new, something teeming with life and power was rising. And so we're going to look first at the story. We're going to walk back through it. We'll look then at the significance of the story. And finally, we'll consider the implications it has for us. Let's pray and we'll jump back into the text. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We come to you this morning as people in need of your word. We need you to meet us where we are at. We need you to disrupt some of the things in our life that are displeasing to you and destroying of us. We pray this morning as we come up against you, as we look at the the real Jesus and his actions and what he said, that, that you would commune with us, that Holy Spirit, as you inspire this text to the ancient writers, would you also illuminate our hearts to see what it means this morning? And would you let it shape us as a church and as your people? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's jump in first to the story. We'll look at verses 12 through 21 and then kind of work our way back through. Going back to verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Let's stop there for a minute. So our text is going to pick up the day after Jesus's triumphal entry. The disciples were staying in Bethany, which is about a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, away from the temple where they had been going to and fro. And they are now walking back uh, to to the temple. It's about a 40 minute walk uh, if you were to keep a a regular pace there. Um, And immediately the text lets us know that Jesus is hungry. Jesus is hungry. And he sees a fig tree off in the distance. If we have an image of that fig tree, not that one, but a fig tree. Let's go ahead and put it up. That's a big claim there. Um, He sees a fig tree. And I imagine that Jesus kind of, you know, wanders a a bit away from the disciples and they kind of see him going off. They're not exactly sure what's going on. He goes up to this fig tree, which is full of green leaves, um, and he searches it for fruit because the text tells us that he's hungry. And then we discover that Jesus finds no fruit. He finds nothing but leaves. And to be fair to the tree, it wasn't the season. Mark makes sure to tell us it wasn't the season where figs should have been there. So it's kind of what you would expect. But then the disciples, I imagine them as they're kind of huddled up watching and saying, what is Jesus doing? Does he, you know, what, what's going on? And they, they hear him curse the fig tree. He says, uh, it, uh, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And he comes back to the group. And they head on to Jerusalem. It's like the disciples were kind of like, oh, I, I don't know. You know, nobody's, evidently nobody says anything. Um, it, we don't know what's going on. And if we stop to think about it, it it's kind of an odd scene, right? Seems, seems a little bit harsh for Jesus to, uh, to, to just curse this fig tree, this poor tree that was just sitting there running the course of nature, which, by the way, Jesus, you are kind of the creator of this tree and the creator of nature who made this process where it, you know, bore fruit in certain seasons. What's going on here? Was Jesus a bit grumpy because he was so hungry, you know? Maybe you've been, you've loaded up the family in the car and you've gotten all worked up for McDonald's breakfast. Anybody still get worked up for McDonald's breakfast? Okay, and you've gone and you, and, and you get there at 10.50 and you realize that in this town or this place, the, the breakfast close time is 10.30. You ever done that? And then all of a sudden you're cursing that McDonald's. May they never sell a burger again. Was he hungry and angry? Well, I don't think so, but... Text doesn't really tell us yet. Um, did Jesus forget that, that, that fig trees are out of season? Did he not know? Was he did he did he did he not have the common knowledge of the day that figs uh, weren't supposed to be produced? We we don't get an immediate relief of this kind of questioning of the awkwardness of this. The story just kind of moves on. There's no conversation. They move on to the temple. Now. 
We keep going. They head straight to the temple. Mark pretty much jumps right from the fig tree into them, arriving in Jerusalem and going into the temple. And immediately, Jesus begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought. And he overturns tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Wow. This is, this is quite a day. I have an image here of, of the temple. I want, you, I want to give you this imagery real quick because I know that you don't just call up the temple in your mind when you think, right? What, what's, what do we think of when we think of the temple? And here, here's a little bit of an image of what they would have been in. And Jesus has entered in this space that's kind of marked Gentiles courtyard. It's not on the inner part of the temple, but this was a place that was set aside for the Gentiles to come and worship God. And it was also the place where they could, they could exchange money and get, get the right currency to buy sacrifices. And so there was some legit business going on here. But Jesus comes in here and he sees what's happening. And he sees the, the over maybe commercialization and crowding out of the space reserved for the nations. And he begins to get angry and turn over tables. And he disrupts the operations of the temple. It tells us in the text also that he wouldn't let anyone carry anything throughout the temple. This is quite the scene. And Jesus says something to them that explains his actions of, of what he's doing. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Wow. Jesus here in the first part of, the, of what he's saying is quoting Isaiah 56, 7, which says this, these I will bring to my holy mountain. By the way, the these is referring back to the nations. It's all peoples of the earth. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. See, Isaiah's vision is that there would be a place, the temple, the epicenter of, of worship and of, and of God's presence where not just the Jews would come and worship God, but all the nations of the earth could come and know their creator. And Jesus is saying, essentially, that not only have they failed to create space for the Gentiles, that's going to be his primary gripe, by the way. He's not just mad that they're selling stuff. Sometimes you hear that. And maybe they were overly set. They'd overdone it a little bit. But he's primarily mad because the space meant for the nations to come in and worship and meet with God had become so crowded that there was no space for them. Perhaps it's so noisy that they can't pray. Perhaps the, the, they even, there is, some commentators think that they were even taking advantage of them. They knew that, hey, you've got to, there's no other sacrifice store. You've got to buy here. We're jacking those prices up, right? He's mad because a house that was meant for the nations to come and encounter God has no room for them. And not only this, but he says that the leaders, the, those who uh, are here, it's become a den of robbers, now, this, this phrase is found a couple other times in scriptures. It's not a common phrase, but essentially it would be kind of like a hideout for criminals. It'd be a, a safe space that criminals could go, maybe like in a cave or someplace where the authorities couldn't find them. And, he, and the, the irony of this statement, he's saying the place that was meant to be a house for all nations has now become a house for criminals and robbers and thieves. That's what you've made of my father's house. R.T. France, a New Testament scholar, says 
this of why Jesus was upset. He says it was because of the commercial activities. The commercial activities had crowded out worship as the main purpose of the temple that Jesus protested and sought to bring about Isaiah's vision of the eschatological role of the temple. You see, Jesus comes into the temple and he sees that it's turned into something dead. It's turned into what we would call dead religion. The very space that was meant to empower God's people to be a light to the nations has begun extorting the nations, has been crowding them out so that their thievery could continue. Now, this has been quite the morning for the disciples, hasn't it? This is an eventful text. Uh, Mark is very action-oriented in the way he tells it. First the tree, now the temple. Um, and Jesus, it's not like he's just teaching. Like, he's taught harsh lessons before, but now Jesus is enacting those lessons with, uh, with kind of like little examples. He's turning tables over. He's stopping people. This is getting... Uh, this is getting a little crazy, right? If you're with the disciples, you're putting yourself in their shoes, you're a little uncomfortable at this point. You kind of, like, Jesus, maybe you should tone it down a little bit, you know? You don't want to tell Jesus stuff, but maybe so. Now, to add to this, I, I, I think we need to understand the significance of the temple, right? Sometimes we just throw around words like, oh, yeah, the temple, you know, the temple. Um, and, and, and for us, we don't always understand the sacredness or the importance of the temple, right? The temple, maybe for us, we could think of the Vatican, uh, although that's pretty distant and very few people have been there. Maybe, maybe in America, the White House, um, maybe in, in England, the, you know, where they, where they do the royal weddings, the, uh, what is it, Westminster Abbey. Uh, it's, it's a place of awe and sacredness. And here's Jesus causing a commotion, turning over tables, condemning the leaders, and then temple, it, wasn't, it was an important place to them. There's, there's three things I want you to know about what the temple meant to the Jewish religious life. Um, three things, real quick. First, it, it, it was a place that dealt with forgiveness of sin. The temple was a place where sacrifices for sin were offered. We see that in Isaiah. We see that going on here. Jesus is disrupting the sacrifice for sin. And the temple was the primary place for which you could come and be assured of forgiveness by sacrifices being offered. Second, the temple was a place that represented the presence of God. The temple we could think of as kind of the overlap of God's dwelling in heaven and our dwelling on earth. The temple was meant to be a space where God could come and dwell. In fact, there was in, in the innermost parts of the temple, the holy of holies, only the high priest could go in there and it was just once a year. If you look at the design of the temple, if we have one of those models of the temple images, we can throw that up. You look at the design of the temple, you see all these walls and spaces and courts. Each one of those is kind of getting further and further into the, uh, the holiness of God's presence and how they thought of it. And Jesus is calling that a den of robbers, a place that you couldn't even enter if you were a Gentile. If you were a woman, there was a women, women's court and then a, and then a wall where you couldn't go any further. If you were just a common Israelite male, there was a limitation where you couldn't go. And then ultimately, the Holy of Holies, only the priests could go. And he's calling that a den of robbers. 
Finally, the temple was a light to the nations, as we've talked about. It was meant to remind Israel of their calling to extend God's blessing to all nations, that they would come, encounter his presence, receive the forgiveness they needed, and then they would be a testament to the whole world that God had given that. And they would offer and bring in the nations to come and worship with them. You see, the temple was always a sign. It was a sort of micro model and a preview of what God would one day do for the whole of creation. But it was proving unable to fulfill its intent. It was built by human hands, corrupted by human sin. And Jesus' actions here are showing us that the religious system represented by the temple was in its final days. And something new, something teeming with life and power was rising up. You see, the chief priests and scribes, they hear Jesus' words, they see his actions, and they know what he's saying. <laughs> the message is received. It tells us in the text that they, 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 they immediately begin to, or continue to think of how can they get rid of him? How can they stop this man? Finally, the end of the story part, the disciples, they leave after this very intense morning for them. Perhaps it's evening now, and they're walking out. And on their way out, back to their place in Bethany, what do they do? They stop and they see the fig tree. And the fig tree, the text tells us, had withered to its roots. I think we have a picture of that fig tree. There it is, withered to its roots. Peter stops, and finally somebody says something about the fig tree. I love Peter. He's always the first to speak up, even when he says, you know, stupid things. Um, Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And this is, it's amazing. They're amazed, right? That even, uh, that was a miraculous thing that they witnessed in that day. Now, the question that you might be asking, and, and I've asked of this text, is what are we to make of all this? What's the significance of the fig tree, the temple? Like, this is just kind of confusing. What, what's going on here? Well, let's talk a little bit more about the fig tree. Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is what we might call an enacted parable. An enacted parable. It sandwiches and is strategically placed by Jesus and ultimately by Mark as he records it, the temple scene, to say something about the whole scene. It's kind of giving a flavor. Uh, the, the cursing of the fig tree is, is meant to be a parable to give a flavor to what's happening in the temple. Um, Jesus was no doubt human and had hunger, but I don't think that this scene was really prompted by the fact that he just wanted breakfast. Um, Jesus certainly hungered, but we know throughout the Gospels that Jesus had a deeper hunger to do the will of the Father. Blessed are those, he tells us, that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And here, the fig tree is serving as a sort of symbol for the temple. It's a symbol for the present state of Israel's worship. Like the fig tree, there were leaves, there were greenery, maybe, right? There was, there was decor, there was externals, but there was no fruit. And just as the fig tree was cursed for this, and its life was snuffed out, so too would the temple be cursed down to its roots, and it would crumble. Now, a little side note here, it's likely that when Mark's readers first 
received his gospel. So think of the people who he's writing for. It's not happening right at this time. It's likely 70, 80 years later. But they would have likely seen the temple come to an end in their lifetime. If they hadn't already seen it, if it wasn't already under siege by the Romans, it was underway. And they would have been reading these words still as probably Jewish converts to Christianity. Temple still probably meaning something really important to them. And they would hear these words of the temple crumbling and being cursed. And it would kind of remind them of what's happening. It would mean something more to them. Now, the second thing I want to point out the significance is, is we learn here that Jesus has come to disrupt dead religion. Jesus enacted parables in his symbolic protest in the temple courts show us that he came to disrupt and disorient dead religion. You better believe his actions were disruptive to the normal status quo of the temple proceedings. They were not anti-Jewish, but anti-corruption. They were not against the, the people, but against sacred spaces fostering corruption, oppression, selfishness, and human pride. The temple meant to be the power source of Israel's light had been turned uh, dark by sin. The light had gone out. The rituals meant to lead into the worship of God had turned into empty symbols, as other parts of the scriptures call them, clanging symbols. It was a dying tree soon to wither, and Jesus is not afraid to hold punches about dead religion. And while this episode certainly plays a pivotal part in redemptive history in the gospel stories, I want to remind you this morning that Jesus is still angered and looking to disrupt and disorient dead religion. He's still mysteriously at work through his spirit, crumbling its strongholds wherever it has set up temples of worship. And you better believe in the church over the years that even, even us, the church, has drifted into dead religion. If you just go do a quick survey, I'm not going to take you through a church history course this morning, but a quick survey of the church and you see time and time again the church drifting into dead religion. And Jesus, friends, is still in the business of disrupting dead religion. Perhaps even the day and age we live in, right now, in this moment, the church in America is being disrupted and disoriented for its dead religion. One commentator asked some important questions of our own religious institutions. He says, is it all show, all leaves and no fruit? Are the leaders corrupt, intent on furthering their own careers and reputations while feathering their own nests? Does self-interest and popular opinion reign supreme? Does it offer people false security? Does it allow people to go away, to get away with ritual repentance and never affect the heart and how they live? Has it become a source of pride? Is it something that separates us from others and bestows special status only on an elite? And I think if we were to take an honest assessment of the church in our day, that we would see those things and we would have to say, yes, it has. Maybe some of you are here and, and by no means do we claim to be a perfect church, but maybe you've been hurt by this. You've been hurt by dead religion. 
You've experienced churches and whole movements of the church that are filled with dead religion. Well, Jesus continues to disrupt it. And wherever it sets up temples, he will cast them into the sea. But lest we just sit and throw stones at, you know, kind of the church. By the way, that's kind of a popular thing to complain about. Oh, the church, the church, or this, you know, evangelical church. It's kind of fun to kind of cast stones over there. But, but Jesus is not just concerned with the larger church. He's also concerned with the temple, which is your body and you as an individual. Jesus is angered and serious about driving out sin, not only from the, the temple, not only from the church, but in us. Set apart each one of you for the Holy Spirit. Set apart to glorify God in your bodies. To be middle creatures who exist in God's world as both physical and spiritual. There too in us, Jesus works to disorient and crumble dead religion. A little image I'll give you to kind of think of this. You know, we can tend to kind of set up little temples, little pillars in our hearts. Kind of, kind of find our identity and our meaning and our worth with kind of different pillars of, our, of who we are and where we live or what we do. Uh, let's throw up that picture of the temple again, one of those models, okay? I don't know if you can see this, but you see there's like pillars that are kind of holding up the, this innermost place. You see those pillars? You see them? I think in some way it's each of us in our hearts. We have pillars that kind of hold us up. Things that we build our life upon. Things that we anchor our happiness and purpose and security in. And sometimes because of sin, we tend to erect pillars that are full of dead religion. Maybe for some of us, that's our career. You could look at that on one of the pillars. You could see maybe your moral conduct, that I'm an upstanding citizen. You could put that on one of your pillars. You could put your possessions, maybe how much you own, your net worth, Maybe your family expectations. Well, we're the so-and-so family, and we do it this way. Maybe political power. Maybe heroes of your past, someone you look to who's a pillar in your life, a human being, a minister, a pastor, a teacher. Your health, your youthful good looks, popular opinion. There's all sorts of things we can build our life upon that we can make the center of our worship to tell ourselves that we're someone that we're good and acceptable people. And yet Jesus doesn't mince words with us. And his presence in our hearts is much like his presence in the story today. In his grace, he will let those pillars come crumbling down one by one. And for us, just like it would feel like to these religious leaders, it feels disorienting. Maybe especially when some of those pillars are indeed religious. Sometimes it happens in a day like the fig tree and sometimes it's over years when finally when your life crumbles and you see the emptiness of what you always found yourself in and you realize that Jesus's words were right and true. But there's good news of a new temple. While Jesus is angry and serious about driving out sin, he's not looking to destroy you. He's not looking to destroy his church. 
You see, but in the dying of old, he's bringing about something new. Let's read the last few verses here, verses 22 through 25. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes in what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. See, Jesus is building something new out of the ruins. He's bringing a new kingdom, not based in the old, but fulfilling the old, doing, fulfilling the, eye, the, the vision that, that the temple could never be. He's building a new house, but it's a house not centered on political power, not human pride, not the, 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 the things we erect, but it's built by the Spirit, by Jesus. It's not, a, it's not limited to one ethnicity or nation. There aren't walls or dividing courts to keep some far and others near. It's a house that will rise from the rubble of God's own son. It's a house built on the cornerstone in Jesus himself. Peter talks about this house in 1 Peter 2. He says this. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, the reason that Jesus can come in and disrupt the temple is not because he wants to destroy it or get rid of religion. It's because he is founding something new based on his own body being offered for sin and raised up to be the cornerstone of a new house that he's building, not made of dead stone or things by human hands, but things crafted by the Spirit as he takes people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and pulls them together around Christ. You see, Jesus wouldn't disrupt it if he didn't have something new he was building. We talked about the temple being the place of forgiveness of sins. What's, what's going to happen now that it's crumbled? Forgiveness of sins is now found in Jesus' sacrifice once and for all. No longer just a shadow of animals being offered year after year, but once and for all, the Son of God, the perfect sacrifice given on the cross so that anyone who could come to him would know and be assured that they are good with God, that they are forgiven and welcomed into God's presence. And you see, speaking of God's presence, the temple, it's no longer that we have to go to a centralized place of worship. But even when Jesus died, the temple, the wall is torn in two. It represents God's presence going out to all nations now, where every tongue, tribe, and person who comes to Jesus can house the presence of God. There's no longer a space issue in God's house. There's plenty of room for you and me, Gentiles, the crazy ones who are outside, who didn't have a place. There's a place in the new temple that he's building the church. And finally, Jesus recovers Israel's calling to be a light to the nations. When they had turned inward, Jesus' church, filled with his spirit, would go 
Therefore, among all nations, proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, baptizing, bringing people into the family, being a part of this worldwide uh, temple that God is building. And, And church, one day, I don't know if you realize this, the end game is that the whole earth would teem with God's glory, that the earth itself and the new creation would be the temple, be the whole earth filled with God's glory, that anyone who comes to him and is built into that house would get in. Not because we're better, not because we're this certain ethnicity, or we have these certain things in our culture, but because of his grace, we get in. So I'll close with a couple questions for you. I want to ask you, when Jesus comes to your heart, to your temple, how are you responding? I think there's a couple ways. Some of us can hear these words and we get angry and defensive like the religious leaders. Maybe some of those pillars in your heart that you've kind of seen crumble, maybe you've even been bitter that they crumbled. Maybe some of them you can tell they're kind of shaky, but you're not ready to to admit with Jesus that that's true, some people can just get angry and walk away. Others perhaps can hear Jesus' words, maybe even Jesus beginning to push up against you this morning. You know there's things in your own heart. You know there's pillars you've erected that are are not, shouldn't stand, and you just kind of, ah, you go about your business. (laughs) Withered fig tree, no big deal. Just kind of move on. But there are some who hear Jesus' words and you are led to repent. You're You're led to say, you know what? Jesus, you're right. You're right. That is a crumbling temple. That is no place to find my identity, my significance, my forgiveness. And I want to turn to you. And I want to receive what you have for me. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe the Spirit is is showing you in your heart. Maybe they're, they're, maybe you're even having that flashback moment like the original audience of Mark where your temple has crumbled and you're saying he was right all along. There's only life in him. He's the one I truly long for. His house is the place I really want to be. Let's turn to him this morning and receive the forgiveness and new life that his kingdom brings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that thousands of years later, your word continues to speak to us. Thank you that your Holy Spirit does not leave us alone, but that you are present with us this morning. You are speaking things to our inner person. And Lord, I pray that we would not be angered by your words and run away from you, nor would we ignore them and just move about, but that you would turn us to repent to turn away from erecting temples and places of worship and things in our heart that are built on fleeting quicksand and turn to the anchor, the solid rock, the true substance, the true bread of heaven, you, this morning. Maybe some even here would do that for the first time. Would you meet them with your grace? Would you show them that your disruption of their life is not to destroy them, but actually to redeem them, revive them, resurrect them? It is in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.